You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, your host, and joining us today is Rebecca S. Reeves, Doctor of Public Health, a registered dietitian, and a fellow of the American Dietetic Association. For the past 35 years, Rebecca has conducted clinical trials in nutrition and obesity at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Dr. Reeves has 50 peer-reviewed publications and has addressed many audiences on the topic of weight management. She recently was asked to join the University of Texas School of Public Health as an adjunct assistant professor, which makes her the perfect guest for our discussion today. And we'll be talking about changing nutritional needs throughout the lifetime. Welcome, Rebecca. I appreciate you joining us for today's program. Thank you so much, Dr. Brown. It's my pleasure to be here as your guest. So one of the things that uh, drives people crazy about recommendations for diet and weight loss is that, you know, things seem to change with each passing decade, and uh, what's good today is bad yesterday, and vice versa. So can you tell us a little bit about healthy habits and our current wisdom regarding what are the Healthy People 2010 Healthy Habit Goals? The Healthy Habits uh, is a series of goals, many goals, that were set up by public health agencies and adopted through our government, and they touch all aspects of our lives. Uh, I was particularly interested in the Healthy Habits goals that they set for nutrition. And after looking at these goals on a 10-year basis to see if we achieved any of the goals that they set, and we miserably failed as an American population. So what, what it was interesting to look at some of these goals. Um, of course, our weight goals, we didn't achieve at all. They set up some pretty high standards for us to achieve, especially like for persons who were overweight. And we did not achieve them, and we actually went down. Only about 31% of us in this country are, are overweight. Uh, the only goal that we truly kind of met was our fruits and vegetables. And they set a goal for us to achieve about 4% of our intake being fruits and vegetables. And we actually just maintained that. So we didn't go up, we didn't go down. But it, overall, we don't eat very well as an American population. All right. Well, I'm going to challenge you a little on this. So I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, some people believe that after we focus so much on a low-fat diet, that the response by the public was to eat low-fat items but increase their carbohydrate intake dramatically. And do you think that those goals may have actually affected the obesity epidemic in the United States? Uh, not really, because I'm not sure most of the population realized there were these goals that were set. This is really set by agencies of the, of the government, and they would go back and look based on um, national surveys that are conducted on us and food intakes that are collected. Uh, I think there's so many, many more reasons as to why our population has become overweight. Um, and I think some of the, our, our portion sizes of the food that we're eating, uh, they're double and triple the size they were about 30, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. We're a very inactive population. We're very sedentary. We don't, everything now is technologically improved for us. That we don't have to move. Children don't move. They sit in front of screens. Uh, they're not active. Uh, and our food supply has changed a great deal. Um, and there's food everywhere. I mean, food is so available that we, we, we lose sense of proportion of what we're eating. I think people have even lost a sense of satiety. They have no idea when they're full. Yes. So we just uh, increase our caloric intake, and we just are a happy, overweight population. And I think there is some data that when we overeat that we actually damage areas of the brain that cause satiety. I've heard some very interesting lectures on that. Uh, uh, and those areas become permanently damaged, which is why it makes it so difficult for people to maintain their weight loss, in addition to the fact that 
willpower has a half-life of two weeks and it's soluble in alcohol, right? <laughs> yes. Okay, so let's turn to the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. Uh, what are they recommending now for guidelines for children and adolescents? Well, again, it's that children should move. Uh, I think physical activity plays a big role in the emphasis of the guidelines. They, need, they know that children are sedentary and they just need to get outside and play. So there are several initiatives, of course, going on across the country which are trying to motivate organizations to get children to be active and play. Also, children, again, need to look at the amount of sugar-sweetened beverages they're drinking. Uh, we're not saying that this is a cause of their obesity, but it is, could be an associated factor, that they are consuming many more sugar-sweetened beverages than they should. So their food intakes are not very good either. So it's, it's a matter of food intake, physical activity, what are they doing, and can we get kids moving? So I'm wondering sometimes uh, whether the parents are part of the problem. I, I uh, remember as a child, my parents would let me ride my bike at 9.30 at night. As long as my homework was done, I could go all the way across my local town and go visit with my friend for an hour or so before I went to bed. And now I wouldn't have ever dreamed of letting my kids go out after dark. And um, So we blame the video games, but do you think it's the post-9-11 syndrome that has something to do with our kids not being so active? Um, I think security issues are a big problem, uh, a challenge for parents, um, safety issues. I think the environment in which kids are living is a challenge. There are not a lot of sidewalks anymore. Kids only have streets, and parents are worried about that. Also, parents are working longer. And both parents are working, so there truly is no one at home. And so these are like the latchkey kids, and they don't, you know, they either put them in after-school programs. But I do believe parents, I think parental influence, parents have a good deal of influence even on what the child is eating. So what is the food served at home is what are the habits the child is adopting. And that, I think, is core to helping a kid choose better foods. And do you think the fact that both parents are working in most cases also contributes to the drive-through dinners and things like that? Well, and the fact that the kids are, are very uh, involved. Children are very involved in, other, in all kinds of activities that I never even had access to when I was a child. And I, th and I think that's good. I think it helps keep them out of trouble. But it does present a challenge for parents to have uh, family meals. Uh, and so they do depend. But I, it's not that those foods aren't exactly unhealthy. I think, I think a mom can choose healthy foods from some of these dry foods now, but she just has to understand what foods to choose. Okay, well, let me ask you a little more about that then. So based on that discussion, if you were making recommendations to parents for what would be the best things that they could do to try and steer their children into healthier dietary habits, what would you recommend? Uh, well, of course, I'd uh, look at the fruits and vegetables. I would look at school lunch, too, and what am I putting in my child's lunchbox. Um, I'd try and, in, and encourage them uh, to eat, you know, some of these uh, small packages of vegetables. Um, so, and then I'd look at dairy products. I think children aren't consuming enough of the dairy products. They're not getting, they're, they're switching out milk and taking more fruit juices and sugar-sweetened beverages. So I think it's, it's, again, it's looking at the variety of foods that a child is eating and trying to encourage the child to adopt new eating habits. But the food has to be served at home, and the, and the, and the child has to see the parent eating the food, too, in order to understand if it's good. So uh, it's, it's, again, it's variety, it's fruits and vegetables, it's dairy foods. Uh, I think they get enough of their protein and their grains, but it's kind of adding in these other things. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and I'm speaking with uh, Rebecca Reeves, adjunct assistant professor at the University of Texas School of Public Health.
Rebecca, in regards to nutrition, patients are always asking about the benefits of certain foods like plant sterols, plant stanols, nuts, chocolate. Um, and, you know, we have some controversy about whether plant stanols are better than plant sterols in terms of lowering cholesterol um, and, I, and without any real data, just some observational data about atheromas having some plant sterols in them. And, of course, those rare diseases that have high plant sterols in the blood that cause atherosclerosis. My question to you is uh, what do you recommend in terms of those types of foods? I have uh, looked at a lot of the literature with plant sterols. I have been in sessions with persons on, with plant sterols. And I believe that over 50 years of research on, this, on these items, on these compounds, is solid. And I believe that if a person does consume between 2 to 3 grams of plant sterols or stanols a day, they will see a reduction in their bad cholesterol, their LDL cholesterol, and in their total cholesterol. Now, I think to me the, the problem is, is if people don't understand them. They don't know really, you know, the, the great majority of the population don't understand what they are and they don't know where to find them. And that, I think, is a real issue. And so it's a matter of trying to get this out to the public. But I think if, if a person's cholesterol is just kind of inching up there, you know, and the doc says, ooh, lol, your cholesterol's getting around 200, over 200 a little bit, it's a time that you could try dietary measures rather than getting right to the statins. And I think there is a place for a plant sterile, a plant stanol. But again, it's for the public to understand where they can find these foods. Because the natural foods we eat, only contain roughly, you know, about 500 milligrams a day. It's just not enough. You need to get to that two, at least the two gram level, and sometimes you need to get beyond that if it's looking at it individualized. Yeah, we found even in our lipid clinic, uh, we, d we use plant stanols a lot as additive uh, therapy, and, and even in our clinic and people on statins, when they're close to target and they don't want to go up or can't tolerate higher doses, the addition of plant sterols or plant stanols can give you a significant additional reduction. It saves them additional medication sometimes. I really feel that, you know, people people should look to this. And there and if you look on the web and if you maybe go into Google and you put in foods with plant sterols, you'll come up with some suggestions if you don't have your registered dietitian to tell you what they are to begin with. Right, which is a good option that people should exercise more often. So are nuts recommended in a cardioprotective diet? We're starting to see nuts added in as a recommendation. And it is. There have been a lot of, there's many studies now which have looked at the consumption of nuts in addition to cardiovascular disease and its effect. And the recommendation uh, is about five ounces a week. And it's most nuts uh, that you can consume. I think most, a lot of the literature has been done on almonds and walnuts. But they do think that all the nuts have this uh, capacity to help us with cardiovascular disease and help lowering that level. I should mention to our audience that we are broadcasting from the uh, National Lipid Association meeting in New Orleans. So you may hear the gleeful attendees in the background, which is why we have some background noise on today's program. And it's been great to be able to broadcast here at the meeting. Uh, not only are, are there excellent talks being presented, but we're able to collect a great group of speakers and uh, interviewees for our program. So should adults with coronary disease eat dark chocolate? That's another thing that got a lot of my patients excited. Isn't that exciting news? And here's something that we're not saying don't eat. We're saying, gosh, this is something you can't eat. So yes, and it is the dark chocolate. It's got to be the, the darker chocolate rather than the milk chocolate. And this is this, the, the compound in dark chocolate is flavanols. 
And they do have this antioxidant capacity, which allows, you know, which uh, it decreases your risk of heart disease along with other factors. So it's not to be overconsumed, because remember, we've already said that Americans are very much overweight or obese. But if you're going to eat chocolate in very small amounts, because I do believe in moderation, uh, choose dark chocolate and enjoy it. Now, don't they mix the dark chocolate with uh, milk and butter and other things when it comes out in a candy form? I, I mean, how do you how do you choose something that actually isn't loaded well, with other things that are bad for you? Well, it? I know you need always read the label, but if it's if it's like I think it's 70% cocoa, then you're really getting something that is a, a true dark chocolate. You need to avoid the words like milk chocolate, and that's that's the wording you need to avoid. Okay, so we have about. Uh, five more minutes to talk and I, I wanted to get to a topic which I think is very important which is as we focus so much on nutrition reducing fat but I worry a little bit about the older patients because they often suffer from inadequate caloric intake and uh, so I'd love to hear your advice on uh, how we should counsel patients who are older and um, not just middle-aged but the elderly patients many of whom are living to be much older than previously, into their 90s and staying healthy. So uh, how neurotic do we have to be about diet in those uh, patients, and how much do we have to worry about their calorie intake? Yeah, uh, there are many studies done now which do show that persons, and should we define older, but persons at least over 65 up in their 70s are decreasing their food intakes for various reasons. They just lose their appetite, they're not moving, they're not hungry. And so therefore, with the decrease in these foods, and also then their, their dentures, their ability to chew has a lot to do with it. So when you get into like protein foods or uh, animal foods, they're decreasing those amounts because they can't chew them very well. Well, then that can lead to a deficiency in B12. And that's a, B12 is primarily found in animal foods. And that therefore, and B12 can actually cover up for some dementia. It, and it can be, they found that if, it's, if they can recognize the B12 deficiency, then they're really maybe not demented. The patient may not be as demented as we think. So B12 is a real factor that I think we need to consider as we're looking and treating uh, our older patients. Also, there's this issue of sarcopenia, which is muscle depletion in our older uh, adults. Uh, and so they're, they're thinking, now this is not confirmed, but they're thinking that maybe we need to increase the protein intake a little bit with our uh, older patients. Now, of course, protein, are you going back to, you know, the animal foods, which may be hard to choose, or should you get into more of your dairy products, which could be consumed at, at a better rate? So um, the recommendation is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight, which is, you know, uh, per day. Uh, and that is about five or six ounces of uh, animal protein foods per day. So we, I think we just need to be cautious. We need to be aware of the number of protein foods that our older populations are eating, uh, just to be sure that they're getting sufficient uh, protein to take care of this. It could be this muscle loss that they're facing. Because sometimes, you know, people don't really look sick like this, or I mean, they don't look like they're losing muscle mass, but it needs to be tested to determine whether or not they are. Also, I would say our older population needs to keep moving they too are becoming very sedentary. And then with their other problems, their arthritis, their joint problems, they need to be moving. So they need to get into programs which are adapted for persons of older age, whether they do chair aerobics or there's just some kind of stretching exercises they can do on their own. So I think physical activity is important for this age group also. Well, Rebecca, thank you very much for being with us today and your insights on diet and what to do across different populations. Uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time. But uh, really appreciate you taking time away from the meeting to come and talk to us about uh, nutritional issues and the changing nutritional needs throughout the course of life, from children to the elderly.
Thank you. Really appreciate it. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and you've been listening to Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association on ReachMD. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com slash lipids. This features podcasts and other series that we hope you'll enjoy. Thank you very much for listening.